Hey y'all, welcome to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes. It's really good to be with you all here tonight. Um, I want to say, especially as we kind of get going, that I know there's a lot of new faces this semester. There's a lot of new people here, and we're really, really glad that you're here with us. Um, we pass a clipboard around every week. If you um, want to put your name or number or contact on that, uh, please do. It's a great way for us to get connected to you better. If you, if you don't want to be more connected, that's totally fine. We're so glad you're here. Um, let it pass. That's okay with us. Um, but I also want to say, too, that if you're here and you're an established person, you feel like this is kind of your ministry home, um, this is a great time to reach out to somebody. This is a great time to get someone's number, um, set up a coffee or a lunch, and just kind of get to know people. Um, this is an awesome time for us to do that together. So uh, this semester we're doing the Psalms, and one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is they kind of cover the heights and the depths of the human experience and what it is to be with God and be a human being, someone who's sinful, someone who's messed up, someone who deals with how hard the world is, and live in relationship with God. And tonight, I think we're really going to touch on that uh, as we deal with Psalm 51. Um, This is a a really great psalm for us, um, especially as we move in um, to what does real community look like especially here halfway through the semester. So let me read Psalm 51 to us, and we'll get going. There's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I give it, and I'll be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, I do pray that you would help us tonight to understand your word and through it more of who you are more of uh, your grace, more of your mercy. God, more of our sins so that we'd see more clearly your love in the cross. Lord, guide us tonight together um, through your word. Guide us to see your face. Help us to see you and to understand you and to rest in your work on our behalf. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, So there are a few podcasts that I listen to fairly frequently, and one of them is This American Life. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's one of the more popular ones. There was one that came out a couple of weeks ago, and the reporter uh, was kind of investigating this guy who was this former corrupt police officer and, as he was kind of going around and trying to make amends for his past life. 
So he and his partner had been shaking down people. Uh, they had been planting du- drugs on innocent people as they kind of gone through the community. They had lied under oath in court, uh, which is you know a pretty big no-no, about uh, planting drugs on people and what had gone on. And eventually these two guys get busted, and the cop goes to jail for something like three or four years in total. And while he's in jail, he actually becomes a Christian. And when he gets out on parole, part of the stipulation for him to be out is that he has to do some community service. So this formerly dirty cop starts working as a liaison between the police and the local community. And part of what he's doing is this kind of reconciliation work with the people that he's wrongly sent to prison. Like, and some of these folks have been in prison for like seven or eight years, like twice as long as he went. And he just ruined their lives. So he's going around and he's apologizing to people and saying, you know, if you want to meet and get together with me and just unload on me, like, I will listen to that. I will take it. I deserve it. And I will say I'm sorry at the end of it, no matter what. So he's going around and he's having these conversations with people and this reporter is mad because she, she's essentially saying, you can't forgive this guy. Sure, he's humble now because he's been caught, but he was this terrible police officer who's using his power to ruin your life and now all he has to do is say sorry and he's forgiven and some of the guys were like yeah you have a really good point there like i'm not going to forgive him but others were like no i'm i am going to forgive this man but for the reporter who was mad i think she just generally felt like there just wasn't enough blood on the floor like to say sorry was just too easy to cover all the transgressions this guy had done. And to hear him, especially asking from these men for forgiveness for something he'd already taken from them, it just kind of felt like a kind of a double take, if that makes sense. And I want to say, I heard that story and I thought, I think she might have a point. That forgiveness actually has to be built on something more than saying sorry. I mean, she didn't understand the fact that he was a Christian, and so the Christians would say, you know, Forgiveness is built on the blood of Jesus. But what she heard was, like, all he is is saying sorry. And for me, I heard that story, and I said, it raises some pretty interesting questions, doesn't it? Of what's it actually like to be forgiven? Especially when you've really messed up. Like you've really done some bad things. What does that take? The Bible calls us into a relationship with God. And the Psalms are saying, this is what that relationship is like. And I want to say from the get-go that just like any relationship, you're going to have to be forgiven. Like, your parents have forgiven you at some point. If you've got a sibling, they've probably forgiven you. If you date someone, they'll have to forgive you. If you marry someone, you definitely will have to be forgiven at some point. The Bible says relationship with God is this real thing, which means that forgiveness is part of that. And so tonight I want to look at Psalm 51 and ask, what is that forgiveness like? I want to ask three things about this, or talk about three things about it. I want to talk about the why of forgiveness. I want to talk about the what of forgiveness. I want to talk about the who of forgiveness. The why, the what, and the who of forgiveness. So why, why does David get to this place where he can be forgiven? He sees two things here. He sees his sin and he sees God's mercy. Right from the get-go, this psalm is telling you what that sin is. I mean, this psalm is written in response to it. David's reason for writing this psalm is that he commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and he murders her husband, Uriah. 
You see, David had used his power and his position of king of, as king of Israel to coerce this married woman into having sex with him. She probably didn't have much of a choice in that because who he was, which is heinous. And then he has her husband, Uriah, who's a soldier, fight, off fighting his battles for him, come home. And Uriah uh, is really faithful. And he actually doesn't go and see his wife. He actually stays with the men. And so David has him placed in a position in battle where he's sure to get killed, and he is. So David effectively murders this guy. And he ignores the whole thing. Totally sweeps it under the rug until Nathan the prophet confronts him about what he's done. And says, this is evil. This is wicked what you've done. And I want to say that David is just like us in that. That David doesn't want to see his sin. He doesn't want to deal with it. But for him to continue living in a relationship with God, he actually has to see the ways in which he's hurting people, the ways in which he's hurting God, and turn to him and be forgiven. I think this is actually a really big deal because we don't want to see our sin because it makes us feel bad, doesn't it? I mean, it makes me feel bad when I see it. Or it kind of deflates our sense of like who we are, that we thought, man, I thought I was this really good person, and I look at my sin and see the ways I've hurt people, and I'm not. I can't deal with that anymore. And yet, whatever I do, it just keeps bubbling up. It pops up no matter what happens. People tend to take two approaches when they deal with sin. One is they downplay it. They say it's not a big deal. It's not a real thing. This isn't the real you. That's kind of David's approach, right? It's kind of like, have you ever sat down with someone who's in this kind of major blow-up fight with somebody else, and they're sitting down with you, and they're trying to convince you that they've done nothing wrong, but all the wrong is on the other person? Has that ever been that your experience? That happens to me all the time. And, and you're sitting there, and you're thinking, surely you've done something in this. Like, they didn't just go crazy for no reason, right? But they're trying to convince you, no, this is, this is all them. Like, we do that with our sin. We downplay it, right? Or the other approach is that we can try to deny it. Like, stop, like, just stop being mean. Stop being so proud. Stop, stop doing all these bad things. Just stop it. It's kind of the, the Gary approach, right? <laughs> like, also not very helpful, Neither approach is realistic because sin isn't just something that we do, though actions can be sins, but sin is something that comes from our hearts. It flows up out of us. Sin is, David is owning his sin here. He's not blaming this on other people, on his parents, on the circumstances. He's saying, these were my thoughts, these were my actions. In verse 5 he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, this has always been a part of who I was and who I am. To kind of use a theological phrase here, people have said that he's totally depraved, uh, which doesn't mean that he's as bad as he could be, but what it means is that every aspect of David, every aspect of us, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, our motivations, is touched or damaged or colored by sin. Jesus' conflict in the New Testament with a lot of the religious leaders was over, you know, is sin something on the outside of me or is, something, is it something that comes out of me? And he said, sin is something that comes out of our hearts, which is hard for us, isn't it? And it's not hard just because we have to look at ourselves and deal with our sin, but also because we come from a culture where a while back it seemed like if we just dropped the idea of you know, right and wrong as this kind of fixed thing, that people would kind of get along better. 
And when we did that, we also dropped the, the idea that you need to be forgiven or that there's a way to be forgiven. But actually what happened was that that kind of made things worse. Because it didn't mean that right and wrong went away or that people didn't need to be forgiven. It just meant we didn't know where right and wrong was or, and we didn't know how to be forgiven. Which is, I think, part of why our country is more polarized than it's ever been. Because people don't have a way to be forgiven. Even though we can't help but be in relationship with each other. With all these complicated histories and complicated personalities. Like We were made to be in these tight-bound relationships and then we trample on one another. And then we don't have a way to get through that. Here's also the deal with living in the modern world. Is that you can log on to Facebook and you can see like a hundred worthy kind of voices crying out like, help this cause, be a part of this thing, do this thing. And you can't do it all. Or you can turn on the TV or read an internet story about a hurricane wrecking the coast and you see all this need and you just can't do everything about it. Or maybe you could if you dropped everything, but you don't. And so we feel guilty about it. A guy named Wilfred McClay wrote an essay a few years ago called The Strange Persistence of Guilt and said this about the weight of guilt in our world. It resonated with me. I don't know what you think about it. But he said, whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's just an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. He's describing this world in which we, we know we need to be morally justified. In which we know that we have these problems, these sins. Because sin is like a stain, it's a weight, it's a debt. Without forgiveness from that guilt, from that debt, people build up scapegoating, shaming, condemnation, holding grudges. They build those things up and they don't have a way to release them. And what Psalm 51 is saying, that the place to begin is start dealing with you and God. That we all show up with this guilt like a debt hanging over our heads. And we have that with one another. But man, we really have that with God. That all of our pettiness and selfishness and sins are done chiefly not to one another, but actually to God. This is why David can say, after committing adultery and murder, against you, you only have I sinned. Because it's not that he didn't kill a man and sleep with his wife. But what he's saying is that the real sin behind those things is a sin against God who made that man and made that woman and loved them and put them together. Part of the reason why using pornography is so sinful is that you're damaging yourself and you're damaging your ability to do relationships. And you don't have the right to do that because God is the one who made you. And he made those people on that screen. And so he has the right to you and to them. Part of why envy or theft is so sinful is that you're saying that God is, what God has given you is not enough. He didn't give you enough brains. He didn't give you enough money. Like he shortchanged you in some way. Those things aren't just a sin against other people, they're a sin against God. And we can't stop our sin and guilt and say, you know, it's not a big deal. We can't just deny it or downplay it. But to live life with God with other people actually means we have to step into it and see it. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Look at all the things that David is asking God to do. He says, have mercy on me. Wash me, 
purge me. Verse 10, created me a clean heart. The word for create there is the same Hebrew word that the writer of Genesis uses when God makes the world. David is saying, this is a big deal. I can't stop. I can't help myself. God, you've got to help me. It's like David has thrown himself on the operating room table and God is there not to fix him and fix his heart. He's not there to walk David through his Enneagram to help him get a little more self-understanding. Right? He's not there that, so that David can stop doing bad things and start doing good things. If that's all God does, then God hasn't addressed the problem. But David is saying, God, you've got to give me a new, clean heart. You've got to do something in me that I can't do inside of myself. You've got to make it radically new, radically clean. I heard a story recently about a 31-year-old woman, and she had just moved to Dallas, Texas. And she had some... Uh, she had some kind of mundane medication, like Claritin or something like that. And she, could, she had just moved. She couldn't find a doctor yet. And so she calls her brother, who's a doctor, and she says, hey, can you prescribe me my Claritin medication? And he's like, well, I mean, I can, but you really kind of need to get a doctor. And she's like, come on, like, I just moved. And so he does. And three months pass, and she runs out of Claritin, and she calls him up again. She's like, hey, can, can you fill that prescription for me again? And he's like... No, like, I'm not going to do that. But then she, she kind of pushes on him, and he does. He gives in. And so he fills the prescription. And then finally, another year passes, and she's out of Claritin again. And she calls him up, and he's like, absolutely not. Like, you have to grow up and actually get a doctor. I'm not doing this for you anymore. And so she goes to get a real doctor for the first time in, like, 10 years. And since she's a new patient, they schedule her for a checkup and a physical, and the doctor is there, and he's got a stethoscope on her chest, and they're kind of chatting and talking, and hears something and says, hey, uh, tell me about your heart. She kind of stops her mid-sentence, and she says, what do you mean? And the doctor goes on to tell her about that it's got a really weird rhythm to it, and that she needs to go see a cardiologist right away. And she responds, what are you talking about? I'm, the, I'm this 31-year-old. I'm in great health. I run all the time. I eat well. And the doctor says, you know, I'm not sure what's going on, but you need to go and see someone else right now. And so she goes to a cardiologist immediately, like same day. And when she gets back there, the tech hooks her up uh, to this EKG machine. And they start chatting. And the tech kind of has this weird look on her face. And she says, you know, what's wrong with your heart? Like, this is really odd. The doctor's going to see you right away. So the doctor comes in and makes her walk on a treadmill, gives her uh, an... Uh, overnight sleep monitor, takes an ultrasound of her heart, comes to find out that her heartbeat when she's asleep is 150 beats a minute. And the doctor comes to her and says, you know, this is wildly, like wildly terrible for you. Like you can either go on medication for the rest of your life or we can do surgery right now. And this woman replies, you know, she says, you this can't be happening. Like, I came in this morning to get Claritin. Like, that's all I wanted. And there says, you don't understand. You're in a really dangerous position with your heart. And the woman says, okay, okay. Otherwise, I'm healthy, right? <laughs> yeah. And the doctor looks at her stone face and says, there is no health apart from your heart. There's no health apart from your heart. And she ends up having surgery. And the same is true for us spiritually. That there is no health apart from your heart. What matters is not the outside, how moral or immoral you look. What matters is the real you, your heart, your inside you. 
And forgiveness is about God's washing our hearts. It's about God getting inside of you and washing that part of you that you can't even touch, but which feels dirty. Whether it's the first time or the 10,000th time, forgiveness is something that we receive, which God does for us the most secret, most intimate, inaccessible parts of our lives. You know, in a place at a time where a lot of us can look really put together, or being put together is maybe what got you here, I know it can be really hard to drop your guard and be really honest about ourselves. It can be scary. It can be embarrassing. Part of sin's power is shame. Not just that we've done something bad, but that we are something bad. And so sin wants us to remain unknown. It wants us to hide in the dark. Especially the darkness of things that we're not willing to say to ourselves or to one another. And it's from there that it poisons you. This is what, and this is as much of a reality in Christian communities as it is anywhere else. But what God is saying here is, I want to get in your heart. I want to deal with you, the real you. I don't want you to hold back your heart from one another or from me, but I want to make it clean. I want to make it whole. Because who is this for? I think it's for all of us. I mean, I look at this psalm and I think, isn't this amazing that it's here? I mean, isn't it amazing the Bible is not a book about good people doing good things for God? But the Bible is actually a book about a good God doing good things for bad people in spite of themselves. Which means it has so much room for people like us, for people like me. I mean, it actually gives us words that we need to say to God and say to one another that we would not be able to come up with ourselves. Which means that anybody can look at this and say, this is for me. I mean, do you know what loneliness is? Have you ever experienced that? This kind of feeling that I'm surrounded by all these people, and yeah, they can see my inside, my outsides, but they can't see me. They can't see my insides. They can't get to the real me. Do you know that feeling? Do you know at least part of what's keeping that there and what's keeping those people out? is shame and sin. Like that says that these people can't see me, that I can't let them know me, that I can't unburden myself to them. Do you know what God says to that? He says, I see your heart. He says, I want your heart. I want to forgive you. I want to make you clean. And would that instantly fix your loneliness? No. Would that slay the shame that keeps lonely people from letting other lonely people know their hearts? Yes. 100% yes. Like, that's the beginning. That's the first step. I mean, the first step is, is stepping into this and saying, along with this psalm, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. It's owning this. It's saying, God, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and create in me a clean heart. And we would have no idea how to say those words, would we? If God didn't provide them for us. Do you know that's his mercy to you? That's his pursuit of you? He's saying, I don't want the fake you. I don't want the phony you. I want the real you. There's no other you for me to have. I'm after you. And what I want to say is that I read this and I think, what if this really got into us? 
Like, I think that REF should be known as a community of people that is both really holy and really unholy. Which is a funny thing to say, right? But I think it should be holy in the sense that there are people here who really deeply want to know Jesus and love each other and care for each other and serve one another and forgive one another. And yet I also think that we should be known as very unholy people because we could be honest in admitting that we fall far short of all those things and that we need God to forgive us and love us and that we can actually be honest with one another in that. Like, I want RUF to be that kind of place, not because I think it's good for us to be really authentic and super self-aware. I want us to be that kind of place because I think it's good for you. I, I think that would be a lot of freedom. I think that would lead to a lot of joy and, like, really, really deep friendships where people actually know you and deal with you. And so I would love for RUF to be that kind of place. I would love to be that kind of pastor with you. I would love for you to be those kind of friends to one another. And so because I never want to lead you in a way that I wouldn't go myself, I actually want to end by telling you a story from my own life. When I was an intern in seminary, I uh, did a church internship. Or when I was in seminary, I I was an intern with a church in Memphis. And I was doing high school youth ministry. And the very first event of the summer was the summer pool party. And some of the guys who were involved in our youth group were these four brothers who were African refugees. And I picked them up and asked them all if they could swim on the way over there. And they all said yes. And we all got to the house with the pool and they piled the car. And I'm standing there kind of making small talk with the parents. And we can't have been there for more than, I don't know, five minutes. And someone says, hey, where's the youngest brother? Like, where's the littlest one? And we check in the backyard. We check upstairs in the house. He's not anywhere. And what I didn't know about this place was that they had this saltwater pool, which right after you treat it becomes super murky and super cloudy. Like so cloudy that even if there was a small black boy on the bottom of the pool, you couldn't see him. And so someone says, hey, we should check the bottom of the pool. So somebody jumps in there and they find him and they pull him out. And we do CPR and for I don't know, four or five minutes. And finally he starts to breathe again. And he's coughing up foam and blood and it's horrible. And then I have to make the hardest phone call of my life. I've got to call this kid's dad. And so I call him and I say, Sir, I'm so, so sorry. But there's been an accident. And your son is alive, but we're going to the hospital right now. Would you join us? And over the phone I hear him say, Oh, that's okay. Yeah, I'll be there in a few minutes. And I think to myself, well, this guy, I mean, English isn't his first language. Maybe he doesn't know what I said. So I, I say the whole thing again to him. He's like, no, 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 I heard what you said. I understand. I'll be there in a few minutes. And I drive over to the hospital. I follow the ambulance. And I get out of the car, and I go into the emergency room, into the waiting room there, and I meet his dad. And I thought, I was like, this guy is going to minimum yell at me probably grab me. I would not be surprised if he hits me. Like, I cannot, as a dad now, I cannot imagine what was going through his head. But I walk up to him and I say, I'm so sorry. This is all my fault. And it was. I mean, this kid was my responsibility. And he looks at me and he says, you know, the Bible says there is a time to reap 
and a time to sow. There's a time for life and a time for death. There must also be a time to swim and a time to drown. Like, I forgive you. I forgive you. And it was the greatest act of forgiveness that anyone's ever done in my life. Like that, I, I mean, like I said, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine what was going through that guy's head. Like if someone did that with my girls, I would lose my mind. And you know, I tell you that story, not because that's the gospel, because it's not the gospel. But the gospel is, is that Jesus has died for you. That God has taken his son and drowned for you. That he has done that for me. That God loves us and makes us clean at the cost of his own life. It's why David can say at the end of this, you know, you don't want bulls. Because God doesn't want bulls. God wants a son. Someone who's perfect and spotless to give his life for you. Which means it's not anything you can give to God. He's given you everything you need. What God wants is your heart. What God wants is to cleanse your heart and make you whole. And to kill your shame. And to kill your sin. And to embrace you and hold you as a child. To give you his very self. And to welcome you into community with these people. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you love us. And you give us everything we need. Lord, you make us clean. You make us whole. God, I pray if there are people here who don't know you, who don't know what it is to be cleansed from their sins, God, that you would make yourself known to them. And God, that you would make them clean. That you would make them a son or a daughter. Lord, I pray for us who do know you, but God, who so often feel shackled by guilt, by shame, by fear, or by sadness. Lord, that you would be with us in that. And God, that you would make us look twice as hard at the cross as we look at our own sin. And we look at our own failures. And Lord, that you would be with us in that and show us that, you know, we were not good enough, but you have made us your children. And you have loved us and there's nothing more to be done. Lord, help us to live in that freedom. Help us to live in that joy. Help us to live under your love and in your forgiveness. In your name we pray. Amen. Yeah,